LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Courtney Brown who joins us to discuss the Farsight Institute's recent remote viewing project, Roswell Crash at Corona. If you're unfamiliar with remote viewing, we recommend that you first listen to our show, Remote Viewing, Consciousness and Reality, which you'll find linked on the webpage for this interview. In July 1947, an airborne object crashed at a ranch near Roswell, New Mexico, in the United States. Following intense initial interest in the object, which was rumoured to be a flying disc of unknown origin, the US military stated that it was merely a conventional weather balloon. Although interest in the incident persisted, it waned somewhat until the late 1970s, when ufologists began claiming that one or more alien spacecraft had crash-landed at Roswell, and that the extraterrestrial occupants had been recovered by the military, who then engaged in a cover-up. Then, during the 1990s, the US military published two reports insisting that the true nature of the crashed object was in fact simply a nuclear test surveillance balloon. However, controversy still surrounds Roswell, with many researchers continuing to claim that the official story hides a much stranger and much more shocking secret. As well as looking at some of the results of Farsight's Roswell and Time Cross projects, we discuss the possible nature of alien spacecraft, space travel and the warping of space-time itself. We ask whether the potentially interdimensional nature of extraterrestrial life could be linked to parallel realities that we cannot ordinarily perceive, and what quantum physics is currently suggesting about the true nature of reality. Keeping in mind the adage, science advances one funeral at a time, we also ask how our world might change if remote viewing was finally accepted by science, academia, and society at large. Hello and welcome, Courtney, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Hey, Greg, um, I really enjoy doing your interviews, and I appreciate and I look forward to when you invite me on. Courtney, we've done many, many interviews together, uh, but believe it or not, it was actually April 2016 was our last one, so uh, where does the time go? Yeah. yeah, we've been busy. A lot has happened since then, and so you'll be interested to hear what's been going on. Now, Courtney, today we're going to talk about uh, the Farsight Institute. That's your project and your latest piece of remote viewing work, uh, which is uh, goes under the banner of Roswell Crash at Corona. Of course, we'll be talking about the famous Roswell incident, the UFO uh, crash, as it was uh, perceived by many people. Other people have disputed that. We'll be getting into that and what your remote viewing sessions have turned up. Now, I always say at the start of our interviews, if people listening to this, I've got no idea what remote viewing is. I recommend that they go back to the first interview that we ever did all about remote viewing, or they simply get over to the Farsight Institute website. Wealth of resources there. For those of us um, who are somewhat up to speed, 
perhaps you could just kick things off by just brief introduction to yourself and Farsight. Um, just a line or two about remote viewing for people who, as I say, are somewhat up to speed. And then we'll talk about the latest project and why you selected that. Great. Well, look, I'm, again, Courtney Brown, and I'm the director of the Farsight Institute. And we're the largest, biggest, whatever, uh, most prestigious civilian venue for full public scientific projects involving remote viewing. Remote viewing is a mental perception. A lot of people in the early days thought of it in terms of psychic, but we don't use that anymore. It was developed, the original procedures were developed by the United States military and are still used by the United States military for espionage purposes. And uh, the official first program was closed down in November 1995. And, you know, they don't tell me what they're doing right now, but word is it's way bigger now than what they used to do. And the point is that we're a civilian institute. We have these huge public projects involving uh, remote viewing in methodologies that are derivative of those original military procedures, which we consider primitive, but the ones we use now develop, you know, because things develop over time, just like an early rocket made out of gunpowder is primitive, but a ship was a rocket and a shot, and the stuff we do now is, uh, you know, is, is much different, but it's derivative of those original military procedures. And those procedures are mental procedures that are done under totally blind conditions always, where remote viewers are told nothing other than there is a target and they're supposed to remote view it. And then after everything's done and we do everything that we do on both paper and pen as well as video, uh, then only after everything is sealed and certified and locked in, then we uh, show what the results are. The re- we, actually, we tell the remote viewers what the target was supposed to be. A good example is what we do. We have an ongoing project at the Farsight Institute that's been going on for a year. And every month, we have our remote viewers do remote viewing for the net, for the major news events for the following month. And at the end of the viewing month, we put these sessions, all that on video, up on YouTube for everyone to see. And then we wait for the news, and we see what events actually happen. And we have not missed a single month. And the events have been highly unusual. For example, the Queen, you're in Britain, Greg, so the Queen of England was uh, caught for the first time in her whole uh, in, in her whole existence as Queen, uh, walking through Buckingham Palace in the middle of the night and almost shot by her guard. And that was the first time her... Mid her 3 a.m. wanderings were ever reported in the news. And in fact, uh, we had that as one of our stories the month before, that that would happen on that exact month. And so um, these are very highly unusual types of events. A Flight 804, the Egypt Air flight that spun down, that was our very first uh, month that we did this. And Daz Smith had a perfect session of the airline, of the, of the crash of the airline, of the, of the aircraft perfectly describing the downward descent and the crash of the of the of the airplane so i mean this goes on and on and on with every single month my own son aziz brown he's a remote viewer um he's trained with us and he had a unbelievably great session of john podesta giving the go home speech at the end of the election eve in Hillary Clinton headquarters and during, in the first, you know, in November of 2016. And this goes on and on and on. These are very detailed descriptions. And so nobody's laughing anymore. In the old days, 20 years ago, people were all scoffing, saying you're deluded, everything's crazy. 
but that doesn't happen at all anymore and it's um it doesn't mean that mainstream science is endorsing us but they're certainly not laughing and they're probably scared blankety blank less <laughs> Well, the strange thing, Courtney, about uh, just briefly before we move on from my perspective is, you know, looked at current developments in science, particularly cutting edge and quantum science. All of that is telling us in any event that something like remote viewing is eminently possible. Oh, absolutely. I was giving a talk in Lucerne, Switzerland, a group of, to a group of Nobel, uh, Nobel physicists, in fact. And one of the arguments that I was making is that there has to be a change in the way we understand quantum mechanics. You can't have quantum mechanics being in one realm and then a a line of decoherence separating the classical macro big realm. I mean, everything that we are is based on quantum mechanics. Everything that we are is based on the micro, on the small. You can't say that there's there's one set of rules for one place, another set of rules for another place. And and um, like DeWitt said, you know, just don't 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 try to put them together. And one of the physicists looked at me uh, on stage and he said, "So you." think there's a, you're talking about a generalization of quantum mechanics and i said of course there has to be a generalization of quantum mechanics so you see everything in the quantum realm that just exists as frequencies energy buzzing around that's all they've ever found they've never found anything solid no solid particles have ever been found i mean they talk about particles but if you burrow into them it's just frequencies waves that enter into a state of superposition and boom they they manifest as what we see as a particle but no one's ever actually found anything solid and so the macro realm, the large realm that we live in, has to be just frequency-based. There is no solid anything. And so this this is an inescapable conclusion of the logic. And the physicist community knows that their position, that there's two realms, a micro and a macro, and they just don't talk to each other. They know that that's crazy, but they just don't have a way to conceptualize it and to incorporate it into their realm because they are so wedded to the classical realm that goes back to Newton and Einstein that they say this looks just too real. In fact, one famous physicist was asked this by uh, his, one of his graduate students, and he said, why do I know this is real? And he stubbed his toe, and he said, because that hurt. That's how come I know this is real. This is solid. <laughs> so, I mean, they're living in a delusional state, but what can you do? I mean, if you, if you look back, Greg, uh, we'll get to our recent projects like the Roswell incident in just a second, but if you look back, it was only 1995 that physicists slash astronomers acknowledged that there was planets on other solar systems because 1995, that was the first planet that was ever discovered. Now, if you talk to physicists, astronomers to this day, they'll lie to you. They'll say, oh, no, we always knew there were going to be planets out there. That's bull. They did not. They were arguing ferociously, top down, bottom to top. Very few astronomers were saying there's planets all over the place. They were arguing all over the place in all major universities everywhere that there are no major planets, no planets around any star, not just in our galaxy, but in our universe. That the, that the idea of forming a planet is such an unusual, so many things have to fit together to be perfect for a planet to form. It's very highly unusual that there are any other planets anywhere else not just in the galaxy, but in the universe. And they were actually arguing this. This was taught in universities. They were arguing this at all major, all, all major news outlets, uh, wherever they were seen. That was, the, that was the party line for astronomers up until 1995 when they discovered optical evidence for the first planet. Now, of course, we know there's planets being discovered 
twice a week these days. It's an, a you know ubiquitous type of situation, and now they're agreeing that there's planets absolutely everywhere. But they're not acknowledging that, in fact, they were living in a, not a state of delusion, they were living in a, a, a state of divinity. They were living in a state where they didn't want to acknowledge, for theological reasons actually, that there were planets everywhere, because then they'd have to face the idea that there's planets everywhere, there's life everywhere. Now, scientifically, they only had to say, scientifically, the only tenable position is statistics, which is the mean. And they had only a sample of one at that time, which is a sample of just our solar system. And the sample of one simply says, well, we have a star, and around that star there was nine major planets, Meteors, asteroids, comets, junk galore over the place. There is no possible... The only thing they could say is, in the absence of any information, other information, the prediction is the mean. Mean average of nine major planets, asteroids, comets, junk galore. <laughs> That's the only thing they can say. There's no way in the world they could ever scientifically say that there were no major planets anywhere. So, you know, they were still brought up, caught up in their own religious beliefs of believing that we're special. They were the center of the universe. It was like back in the pre-Columbus days when they thought everything was... Uh, actually, go back further than that. It was in the pre-Galileo and Copernicus days when they thought the Earth was the center and everything had to resolve around. So that was only just 1995. But now you were alive. I was alive. Lots, a lot of my students at my at my university, my college, um, my university said a lot of them are um, still... They were born around 1995. So a lot of them were infants, but uh, you know, still alive at the time when these, this 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 uh, crazy state of thinking actually existed. So, you know, when you go 50 years into the future, of course they're going to be talking about remote viewing in the major universities, but it's just not taught now. Okay, well, turning to uh, the latest Farsight project, as I say, focusing on the Roswell incident, in the recorded introduction I've done, I've given a pod reminder to everyone about what Roswell was about. Uh, so we don't need to get into that here. Uh, we should just press on and talk about your work remote viewing. Uh, well, I should say that there are two major things that we do at the Farsight Institute. Besides putting up like training videos and our young people that are training, um, what we do is we do mysteries projects and we do time cross projects. Now, Time Cross Project, I already talked about where we, it's a news show, but we put up the news a month in advance. So, but it is a news show. And so, like, we have the month of May going on right now. The last day of April, we put up our news show f for May so people could see what would be the major news events. And so far, it's been spectacular. I mean, uh, Melina Hall, which is one of our remote viewers, had a spectacularly detailed and accurate description of Donald Trump giving the commencement exercise at the Coast Guard Academy that just happened this last week. So, I mean, that's what we do, and that goes up for free every week, I mean, every month. Uh, there's a, there's about there's two or three videos on that every month that goes up, but the major news out thing happens the last day of the month. Uh, and then we do mysteries, and the mysteries that we you're talking about now is the Roswell UFO crash. In addition to that, we've also done Martin Luther King, uh, Adolf Hitler, the JFK assassination, Phoenix Lights, Aliens on Apatis, Cydonia Mars, and the 9-11 project, as well as, uh, you know, some others. So, but those are the major mysteries projects that we do. And the mysteries projects are different because with Time Cross, each viewer, it's only got one shot, one session at doing whatever happens, whatever they're getting for that news event that they're covering. 
But with mysteries projects, those viewers, those are different because we know, I know, someone knows me, I know the target because I create the, create the projects, which is different from time cross because the, the targets are in the future. So nobody knows the targets, but I know the targets. And so I give an email out for the mysteries projects saying there is a target and this is a mysteries project. Do it. And so they have to do it and they're allowed to do multiple sessions until they do, they do it totally blind. They're given just the inf- an email saying there's a target, and they have to they do their sessions, and they keep doing sessions, usually three or four of them, until they get enough information to fill out the whole story. Again, totally under blind conditions, they're not told anything, and then they put everything on video, so it's a you know th- theatrical type of presentation of what they actually found. That's different from Time Cross. Time Cross, they got one shot, describe the news event, they're out of there. Mysteries, we're trying to figure out what actually happened, so they keep get it, they keep at it, they keep at it. So that's what we did with Roswell, and we had two targets that they had to go after for Roswell. So one was the actual crash, and one was, I'll tell you in more detail later, then was uh, where, where it came from the, before the crash. Okay, well, as you say, you three remote viewers working on these sessions, Dick Olgar, Daz Smith, um, listeners to our previous interviews will be very familiar with them and uh, Aziz Brown, relatively new addition to the team. We talk just a little bit, again, without preempting the sessions because people really need to see them, but we'll just talk a little bit about what they came up with. And looking at the first part with Dick, he zones in on initially location, but it's just interesting to follow his session through how he detects uh, an impact strange objects, the historical nature of, uh, that is to say it's in the past, uh, from our pers- current perspective, detects this unusual energy force, which is very powerful, and then uh, the presence of a, something that he perceives as military, further to the unusual energy, there's exotic technology, uh, which he relates to possible manipulation of time and space, and ultimately, and this is something that comes up when I have talked with listeners sometimes or get feedback about interviews on remote viewing, at what point uh, the remote viewers sometimes say, well, hang on a minute, you know, I've been given a blind target, but suddenly it might dawn on them, not necessarily knowing what they're looking at, but perhaps guessing. And at the end of Dick's session, he does in fact go, Roswell, could it be Roswell? It's, so it's a really interesting process watching Dick go. I mean, I, Dick is really up there, isn't he? I mean, I, I, he's, he, yeah. He's such a good, um, well, he's a media professional as well. And I think that adds a lot to his presentation of his remote viewing experiences. Yeah, actually, all, all of our remote viewers are really of a different class than, than what you've seen before. Uh, for our young people, we call them our millennials. We've got three currently, Aziz Brown, who's in the Roswell Project, but also Melina Hall and Princess Renee. They've all had a minimum of 400 hours of one-on-one training. That's significantly more than a full full-time, full-time college student has in terms of class time for a full year. So they have a, you know, that's twice a week, all day, about eight hours a day, twice a week for nine months, uh, one-on-one training. I and mean, that's enormous uh, a level of training for something like that. It exceeds what the people in the military got by a huge amount. I mean, so we, it's really at a different level. So Dick is really great, but um, a lot of people have grown so used to Dick and Daz doing their sessions because they've been around for so long. They they are taking time to get used to these new young people, but these new young people, such as Aziz, 
and um, Princess and Melina, they're 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 really up there on this at the same level. We wouldn't let them appear. But when Aziz does his session, he had something new to it. But Dick is um, unusual because he had he was a he was a headline newscaster. He was the face of the news in Hawaii for thirty plus years. So he was more familiar. He was more comfortable in front of a camera than without it. So he he was the one who really pioneered this idea of how to move this stuff to video, how to put it on camera so people could watch it rather than just look at markings on a piece of paper. So that was, yeah, that's that's a big contribution. And Daz Smith, for those of you in Britain, um, he's British. And I've told many people many times he's a national resource. <laughs> so he's one of the best on the planet. So, yeah. So what give you your feelings, your thoughts uh, when you were watching Dick's sessions, just in terms of the, you know, there's different uh, bullet points I pulled out there about what he sensed. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, you know, your, your thoughts on that. Well, it is true that at some point these viewers become unblind to the target, not because they're told anything, but because they've gone back to it so often, they just say, this must be. And so it is not an unusual event for eventually during this project for them to figure it out what it is. That doesn't mean that they know it. They're still doing everything blind, but they just got so much. For example, when we did the 9-11 event, that was such a big deal. They were, you know, they were in a situation where they could clearly see the Twin Towers. They looked like something in the Pentagon. Uh, I mean, the whole, they were putting everything down, but they didn't know. The night that they were told, Daz Smith and Dick Algar were told what the target was, they decided to have the target revealed in an email that I sent them that they would open at the same time while on a Skype conversation. And in the meeting, they were recording it. Um, Dick had not slept for over two days. Uh, Daz Smith was noticeably sweating. And they had seen this thing if they were saying you know if we're wrong if i don't if this isn't the target then we're washed up <laughs> so it was it was literally drenching in terms of sweat and nervousness uh when because they don't know the target but they just get so much information they're just assuming it but it's it's not a level of certainty on the conscious level anyway so and also the two viewers or the three viewers or however many viewers or however we want to work work with for a particular project they never communicate during the remote viewing phase, while they're actually doing the sessions, they're having no communication between them. So they did this all by themselves, alone, in rooms, no communication, and they came up with identical stuff. And so with Roswell, this is really interesting because at some point, Dick said, and he does the same thing he does with all of this stuff, if it's not what this is, what I think it is, then I'm washed up. <laughs> and he says, but this looks like Roswell, meaning he looked at it for so long which tells you the level of quality that we have with these levels of remote viewing. So, yeah, he got the approach of the craft. He got the impact. He saw himself flying over the stuff that we knew that was certifiable. Now, the certifiable stuff is very easy because it was New Mexico desert. Crash at Corona, that's an area about 75 miles northwest of Roswell. So they always call it the Roswell US UFO crash, but it was actually closer to this postage stamp of a village called Roswell, called Corona. And 
it, it crashed there in that area. And so we know what the general terrain looks like. And we also, you know, at, at Farsight, we don't give projects that are not verifiable. So in terms of Roswell, why could we say this was verifiable? Well, it took a long time for us to get to this. But first of all, the terrain itself was totally verifiable. The event, well, we had major publications. We had Stanton Friedman and Don Berliner do a major investigation on the crash of Corona. Okay, that was number one. And we had Jesse Marcel Jr., the son of Jesse Marcel, who was an officer who was at the scene at the actual site. And his son, Jesse Marcel Jr., was a medical doctor. He wrote a very detailed report of what his dad told him, what he found that was there. And we have other things like uh, Chase Brandon, who was a 25-year-plus veteran of the CIA. He was the top CIA person in Hollywood, in California, for, for uh, well over a decade. And basically, what happens is, any time you see a movie or TV show coming out of Hollywood, it's vetted by the, by the CIA. That's why you don't get anything that's you know how you get a lot of, internationally, you get a lot of, uh, you know, stuff that's, it's a, you know, that's not friendly to the CIA. Uh, for example, out of Hollywood, you get a lot of stuff that's against the Soviet Union, KGB, Russia, you know, intelligence services elsewhere. But you never get a Hollywood show that's controversial or negative towards U.S. intelligence services. That's because every single production that comes out of Hollywood is vetted by the intelligence services. <laughs> and Chase Brandon was the leading guy that vetted, um, uh, you know, those, those things, make sure things looked okay. And the Hollywood studios, they don't want to irritate the defense people because they get a lot of support. I mean, ever since going back to World War II, a lot of the movies that came out uh, had strong defense support. You have to have props. You have to have uh, ships, you had to have all types of stuff go on, and you had to have, so you had to have, so there's a long cooperation with the Hollywood industry and Hollywood, I mean, the Hollywood industry and the military, and I'm not, I'm not being negative or critical of this at all, I'm just saying it, this just exists, and so when you have Chase Brandon, uh, a veteran of the CIA, saying, he, he personally saw evidence of the Roswell thing, and in fact, it was a uh, a crash, and that there were cadavers and things like that. And he he said this on uh, more than one interview. Then it's you know it's gone past the stage of whether or not it's verifiable. It doesn't mean that the mainstream news media are reporting it as what it is, but it, it's just way past. The, the realm of if you're a reasonable person, this is reasonably a real event. So, you know, the, it became a verifiable event, meaning we don't have to wait for the entire planet, every human being on the planet, to agree that something's real. As long as there's enough evidence from very certifiable, from very, you know, re respected sources that something exists then we can go after it and then find out what actually did happen. For example, 9-11, it existed, it did happen. There was the World Trade Center bombings, there was no question. But the story of what actually happened, we were free to do it. But if, you know, we couldn't go after 9-11 if no one on the whole planet ever saw it. I mean, <laughs> we had to actually see it. Well, there's enough evidence similarly with Roswell that we're, 
it's not controversial among if you if you look at the actual people who have talked about it and written about it and stated and stated on record and you look at their credentials and what actually happens it's it's not and you also have to include Philip Corso who wrote um Day After Roswell uh, there's some controversy about that book but the book has uh he was a colonel and it was never refuted by the US military so I mean, here you have a colonel giving, writing a book about it. You have Chase Brandon of the CIA. Then you have uh, Jesse Marcel, and then you and they have it, and, and you have civilian investigators, uh, Stanton Friedman and John Berliner. I mean, it's just way past the realm of is it real? So we had a lot of, we knew the crash actually happened, and we knew the train that it happened in. So the purpose of us doing the remote viewing then is to fill in the details. So we now have more information on the Roswell event than anybody has ever had before. And we not only did the Roswell event itself, the first target was the remote viewing, was to remote view the, the Roswell UFO crash. And they were supposed to receive all aspects of the event, including the object involved in the event uh, immediately prior to the incident and that caused the crash, as well as the actual crash itself. And the aftermath. So we got all that. But in the second part of the video, uh, we go after the second target. And that's where, that's what we call origins. Yeah, sorry to cut across you there. I was simply going to say, uh, yeah, that, that's absolutely what you do. I was just going to, I mentioned some of the things that Dick drew out in his sessions. And I was just going to add to that. Um, yeah. Just before, just you know, again, for people who are going to, to check this out, give them a flavor of it before we consider the second half i mean in daz's sessions he again picked up on essentially what was alien craft i mean when he yeah. began his session he didn't know what he was doing but that to you and i looking on knowing what the target was that's what emerged he again picked up on temporal and spatial disruption happening yeah. uh, the existence of life um, at the historical nature of the events a strong emotional energy which is something mm -hmm. that seems to really come across in remote viewing, whether it's um, some kind of physical force, but particularly emotion seems to be something that, that uh, ripples across time and space. And there was also something that Daz referred to as esoteric energy. Again, mm -hmm. perhaps talking about the, what uh, what Dick had referred to as exotic energy. And and, and Daz picked up on, on death, actually, of course, because yep. there was a crash yeah. here, and you mentioned cadavers, of course, and Aziz... His session was somewhat differently focused, but he picked up on, I think the main thing to draw out from his was the important top level people and um, some kind of military involvement and some kind of key decision making, some kind of going on, some kind of crucial meetings, you know, so the, something really important yeah. be, being decided. And all of that, of course, when you stand back, uh, with the knowledge that you and I had that they didn't have at the time, that this was in fact Roswell, it makes sense of, well, not the official narrative, because of course we know what, uh, if you go and look up Roswell on Wikipedia, what what's there. Oh yeah, they say weather balloons and stuff like that. Yeah, but you um, know, Aziz also got, he also got a very clear description, the clearest of all of them, of what happened inside the craft, a minute by moment by moment inside the craft uh, when it crashed. And some YouTubers uh, have commented, uh, and the, the, the thing is available on Vimeo, uh, but they, the YouTubers still comment on it on the trailers, which are put up on, on, on YouTube, that 
<laughs> some of them have said that was the first time they really understood why it's important to need a seatbelt. <laughs> so, so the aliens and the, the craft, they, they have some type of gravitational system that re- doesn't need, you know, they can walk around inside the craft. They don't use seatbelts. But when that failed and it crashed, I mean, it was funny, but it's like the, some of the YouTube comments are, wow, now I understand they, those guys needed seatbelts. <laughs> they got thrown around on the inside of that craft. And, and Aziz really describes it with great, great physical descriptions, uh, sketches of what they looked like when they hit the um, control panels and the walls and stuff like that. It was, And one got thrown out of the craft. Yeah, it was a brutal encounter, like any other crash, like a car crash. I mean, the the ship malfunctioned, and so all the safeties didn't work anymore. Well, of course, and, and what Dick and Daz and the Z's were drawing out in these sessions, which, you know, as I say, related to Roswell, that feeds into um, a much wider picture because, you know, UFOlogy and exopolitics is just this this huge sphere of, of what might be out there. So it's not like this is somehow just relevant to this one event on this one day back in the 1940s. You know, it just it feeds into this wider picture of research yeah. and uh, attempt of understanding. So everything that's come out of this can be for researchers all over the world working on whatever aspect of this they might be working on. You know, they can, can take this information on board if they wish and consider well you know how does this affect what what i know what i think what yeah. i what i'm working on yeah well this clearly takes it to the next level because not only are we using remote viewing to describe what happens at an event but we're able to fill in the larger picture like where did they come from and where were they you know it wasn't just that there was a crash in new mexico but like what was the society like where did they come from what was the and we, and with all the viewers, we got very clear descriptions of how the, this craft came from a formation of ships, and it, in, it had an energy event occur. And we go back even further than that. So you know, like where where it was hangered, where it was docked, and what it was like inside the area where it was before it actually flew out and encountered that energy event that caused it to malfunction. So yeah, this this is a big thing, and for, you know, this seems like so weird that you can actually talk about this stuff. But when you look at our time cross stuff, which we've been doing for a year now, and we're it's ongoing. We're using it as we train new viewers. They they get a year of exposure to interacting with the public through our time cross stuff. If you see the accuracy of our time cross, you know, your jaw just drops and you says, "Holy blankety blank." This is real. This is happening. And so then the mysteries projects make sense. So it's not, we're not asking people to take anything on faith. We're saying, no, if you want to see what we do, look at Time Cross. And then you want to see what we've discovered, look at mysteries. <laughs> and that's, and so it's, it's very real. And if you go back 20 years, Greg, people were saying we were deluded. I'm a college professor. I don't do any of this at my university, but, you know, my college, uh, colleagues you know we're all thinking this is crazy stuff this is delusional what's he's lost it stuff like that nobody's laughing anymore i mean there's still some stress in the force uh but it's it, nobody's laughing anymore and um and 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 it's my understanding that university administrators um know that the time is going to happen when this thing will be embraced by mainstream the trouble is universities are not 
paradigm busters. You have to rely on individuals to do that. That's never going to change. Universities are economic aggregators, and you can't you can't knock down a paradigm by an, with an economic aggregator. So they have to wait till the paradigms fall, and then new things get replaced. And then the university throws universities throw major resources at it because they invest in it because they know that more money will be coming back uh, in hundreds of millions of dollars of grant money and things like that. But the paradigms have to fall first. So university administrators are both silent and waiting. And a good many of them, I'm not saying at my university, but a good many out there in the university establishment, I'm certain, are ready to pounce uh, when that moment does occur because, you know, there's not many people that do remote viewing or the, and to have the sort of scientific approach that is so public as we do. And there's it's, it's only a matter of time before universities are going to be scrambling to have that incorporated, all the lessons that have been learned about remote viewing, into all of their other coursework, into their research, into their granting, into their funding organizations, the whole the whole nine yards, but it can't happen prematurely. So this is a very delicious time for us at Farsight because we understand the process so well and we've got the projects in, in-house in going right now and we really professionalize the video presentations, we really professionalize how we do things, it's ready for prime time. And so this is a very fun time for us to be doing this. Well, as far as the projects you've selected, um, it's occurred to me and I'm sure a lot of other people, it's like, with you know, with regard to this potential clash with academia and the mainstream, it's like, well, you know, you selected these conspiratorial areas as projects, and you're making a rod for your own back with us. That, but you're damned if you do, and damned if you don't, really, because yeah. what would you select then as yeah. something to explore, were it not mysteries, things that have um, have controversy exactly. surrounding them? I mean, that's the that's goal. that's exactly that's exactly why we simultaneously do time cross where we do the next month's major news stories a month in advance. It's a news show. Time Cross is a news show. It just comes out the month before the events happen. And but it's but we know, you know, what's going to be hitting the following month. And so that's why we do it. That's we do that to sort of supplement these mysteries. But the, and you're right, the mysteries are things that we want to know about. And so we have to pick up stuff and the, the say it's conspiratorial is very common. Um that was invented during the JFK assassination. It was invented by the intelligence services to basically ridicule anyone who asked questions about the JFK assassination. So they said, oh, you're, in, you're involved in conspiracies, you're a conspiracy theorist. So that, that's been sort of a party line that's been used. But the JFK assassination was, you know, a very important event in this because it's that tone that has has been maintained throughout and people just say you're doing conspiracy stuff but the time cross stuff that's why we we merge two things together time cross is not conspiracies time cross is news and we do it every month month after month after month and when you look at conspiracy stuff you can sort of say well then what is chase brandon he was a 25 plus year veteran of the CIA, the the big guy in Hollywood for over a decade. What is he? Is he a conspiracy theorist? Then you say, what? <laughs> and it goes on and on and on. What is Colonel Corso? Uh, it was never refuted by the military. His book. Uh, it, it, so at some point in time, you sort of say, 
you know, everything that happens in the world is a conspiracy. All you need is one plus number of people, just more than one, to decide to do something, and you have a conspiracy. And so by luck, by laughing at something and saying, ah, it's conspiracy, it's ridiculous because everything is a conspiracy. There is nothing that happens as a sole perpetrator. That's the that's the oddball event that occurs. Almost everything else that occurs in the world is a conspiracy of some type or people. For example, now there's a big story that's going on for months and months and months about the so-called Russian hacking of the U.S. elections. Well, of course that was a conspiracy. Are you going to say that the conspiracy theorists, so it, you should debunk it? Like it's because it's, I just call it, like throwing a swear word at it? Ah, oh, it's conspiracy theory. Nobody could have hacked those governmental, those uh, DNC, Democratic National Committee servers. Nobody could have hacked them by themselves. It has to have been a group. There's a lot of hacking that went on. So, of course, it was a conspiracy. Everything is a conspiracy. Well, talking about part two of the Roswell Project uh, origins, uh, I bullet pointed a few of the uh, aspects in the first section of what the, the sessions drew out. I'll just do the same again for the second bit. Sure. It, it gives listeners a flavor of what they can expect, what the sessions get into. I mean, Dick's session, for example, on origins, he identifies what looks like a classic flying saucer type craft. I think it's interesting to consider that in itself, why a lot of people kind of kind of chortle at the idea of the flight as if it would really look like that. And yet it's, you know, that goes back to the, some of the Nazi black projects that they were working on different types of craft, you know, during this, the, the latter half of the, the second world war, this could actually be a very, very good form of flying machines to actually come up with. But it's again, but Dick goes back to that. He comes up with the existence of a hangar. Um, interestingly for me as a, as a video game fan back in the 80s, he actually gets into what basically looked like hyperspace jumps as a way of traveling around, yeah. um, from galaxy to galaxy. Um, energy weapons, 3D printing of nanotechnology is one thing that, that Dick comments on me. He's sort of trying to interpret what he's experiencing in his, in his remote viewing. Daz, for example, now his session on origins was interesting to me because it reminded me how often when, in remote viewing, but other sources as well, when they've considered the possibility of life off planets and its interactions potentially with humans, that um, words that come up again and again are a sort of a coldness, um, austerity about the forms of life that have been experienced in whatever realm, a kind of a functionality about the um, the alien species, a scientific nature of what they are doing, a military aspect as well, not talking about from uh, the Earth now, but from the alien presence. And Daz also gets into what you and I, looking at the session, would go, hang on, this is Area 51 in Nevada, but it takes him a while to work around to perhaps this realisation in his own mind. And interestingly, Area 51 was only actually acknowledged for the first time by the CIA in 2013. I didn't know that until recently. That's amazing in itself. President Obama was the first US president ever to publicly acknowledge that it exists. Exactly. And and just as Dick got into the idea or the presence of what he perceived to be a hangar or what to us looking on would seem like a hangar, so Daz detects a bunker and, and, you know, sort of an Iron Mountain type thing, whether it's to keep something out or keep something in is another matter. And then Aziz, his origin session, again, a lot of detail about the inside of a craft 
And what I said before that the flying saucer form is almost like a cliche in UFOlogy and, and exopolitics and, and Aziz gets into the what appear to be greys, as they're commonly known yeah. in the terminology. Uh, just to round all of that off, watching the end of uh, the sessions by um, Aziz there, I got to myself thinking about the possibility, and I'm sure you've come across this idea before, in terms of perceiving this you know, form of alien life that may have played a part in Roswell or any other recorded incidents, uh, past, present or future, you know, are they somehow interdimensional? Have they always been here? Is that part of our issue with perceiving them in a five sense materialistic scientific way? Is that one of the reasons why we struggle with this? So <laughs> no, it's great. You're, these are, those are the thoughts that your listeners are going through right now. You're really following along a, a train of thought that just has to, that has to go there. The whole idea of these, well, let's start with the cliche of the saucer. Yeah, it is sort of a cliche saucer, but that doesn't mean it's real. That's a very convenient shape of a craft that doesn't have to rely on aerodynamics. So if you're going to build a fast-moving spacecraft that enters atmospheres and can go in any direction just by going in a different direction, a saucer shape really makes sense. If you look at our jets, our jets can only go in one direction, forward. Well, if you're not, and that's because we're using aerodynamics. We're using wings and things we float in the air, and we're using the air to keep the float, to keep the ship up. So the flow of the air is important for our aircraft. If that becomes irrelevant, if it's a different form of propulsion, then wings are really in the way, because then you'd have to physically turn the craft 90 degrees in order to make a right wing, a right, a right hand turn. So a, a saucer shape that could turn in any direction, go forward, backward, without having to rotate the craft so it has only a forward direction to go in, that makes a lot of sense. So it's a cliche, but it, it's a sensible cliche. So, and, and the fact that there have been so many saucer shapes, it's not certainly, certainly not the only shape that's been discovered or that's been observed, witnessed, but it is a very common shape. There's been triangular shapes that have been a, that observed, cylindrical shapes, cigar type shapes that have been observed, but in a saucer shape is a very common, is a very common one. And then with regard to civilizations or groups, we do have lots of reports and including some of our remote viewing reports of aliens with other aliens. So it's sort of star, star Wars type of setting where you're in the bar on the original Star Wars. I think it's the New Hope or whatever the first, the, the episode four, which is, which is yeah, the is. first yeah, episode yeah. that ever came out with the Luke Skywalker. So, um, when he was in the bar with Obi-Wan Kenobi and you had all these aliens. So, yeah, we do have situations where aliens are interacting, but it seems to be most common that the aliens come from a homogeneous place in the first place. So they may interact on a ship, but they really like their own kind and they stay together with their own kind. That seems to be the predominant way. And they seem to come from a place that's relatively homogeneous. That's very unlike Earth. Earth has all these different races, all these different types of people, different belief systems. This is a melting pot like probably doesn't exist anywhere else in the galaxy. That's my thought. I, you know, If you're talking about extremes, I would assume Earth is an extreme. And 
you do have obviously interdimensional travel in order to get here because you can't do light speed limitations, relativistic light speed limitations to get here. I mean, just between United, I'm mean, just between uh, Alpha Centauri and Earth, you're talking four point something light years away. So you just, that can't be the way they get here. They can't have light speed limitations. But and and that's a big problem with physicists because that's one of the that's one of the canons of physics that is taught at universities everywhere. There is a light speed limitation and nothing violates that. But it's stupid. It's 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 a belief system. It's like a religious belief system. They have a set of ideas that are built on them like a house of cards, and if one goes and the others goes, so they keep holding them all together. There there is within the relativistic framework of the classical realm, there is a light speed limitation within that framework. But that doesn't mean that's how they get here. Again, they've never ever discovered anything physical. Everything is energy of some sort. And things become real as we see them when they have a certain quantum signature or a frequency, average quantum frequency. And when you change that sort of average frequency, it doesn't exist in our realm, for example, if you have if you have um, certain frequencies that are very different from each other, they don't they don't merge, they don't interact very well. For example, if you go to a piano and you hit middle C, and then you hit the B that's right next to it, you'll see a wah 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 wah. It's called the beat frequency between the two frequencies. The two frequencies are interacting and causing interference, both constructive and destructive interference. But if you did the middle C and then you hit a B that's on the high end of an 81 key uh, keyboard, you know, a very high B, you don't hear the the beat frequency. You don't hear the interaction. There is still some destructive and constructive interference, but it's nothing to write home about. There's essentially no interference that's noticeable. So when the frequencies are very far apart, are very different from each other, they don't interact with each other. They're sort of in, they're they're invisible to each other. So if you have something that you're seeing and everything is made up of frequencies, all those frequencies have to have a compatible set of frequencies that merge, that combine in a state of superposition in order for us to see it. You change that and call that sort of average set, sort of the quantum signature. You change that. And things become invisible. So basically, the bottom line is, if you have some ship that is on the, you know, light years away from where we are now, and you have a way to change the frequency set for that area around the ship so that it matches the frequency set for the area here around Earth, boom, you're here. It happens quickly. Now, there can be a desire to uh, do it a little bit more slowly, so it may take, and there may be, you know, craft that uh, take uh, a week to go many light years. Uh, you know, and there, there can be some time involved in terms of the uh, internal experience because you don't want to wrench things so much that it destroys the craft. You have to hold everything together enough, so it has to be some, so you can't, you can't blink from one set of frequencies to another. You can only slide from a set of frequencies. You can't make an abrupt boom, boom. You have to slide. So the question is, how long do you take to slide? Well, it's certainly not limited by light speed limitations because all you're doing is adjusting frequencies. And if you look at the 
physical evidence of these ships. When those ships get anywhere close to human crafts, the our human crafts, you know, break. The cars stop, the lights go out, stuff like that. Meaning there's such a strong electromagnetic interference coming from those spacecraft that it it affects our stuff. So, you know, that's the method of propulsion that is used. Some type of a electro interference uh, and involvement with gravity and I'm I'm not I'm not a specialist in uh, in in spacecraft propulsion systems extraterrestrial spacecraft propulsion systems but clearly it does use things other than rocketry to go from spot to spot and yeah so you you do have this type of interdimensional travel you might want to call it well I think that's sort of a, a word that we use but it's it may may not be a very accurate word so let me let me throw something out at you that sort of brings to light how different what we know must be true is from what's taught at universities. Let me say something that every astronomer, every physicist, every scientist that you know would gag at. But then give me a second to explain. <laughs> but this is an example that's current. That We don't have to go back to 1995 and say, the guys were idiots. They said there were no planets around any star system in the whole galaxy and other galaxies in the whole universe. We don't have to go back to there. We can go right here. Everything, it's not in dispute that everything that exists on the quantum level exists as a probabilistic smear. There's no single one thing. There's no single particle. What happens is there's a probabilistic smear and there's a probability around which things can exist. And if you generalize quantum mechanics to the macro level, then everything that we exist, that we see here, and that's the trouble that the physicists have been having, everything that we live, that we exist, you, me, everything else, is a probabilistic experiment, meaning the implication is that there's an infinite variety of all of us. So, Greg, there's a version of yourself where you're wearing a blue shirt, a white shirt, red shirt, same with me, different things. So, all of these sort of probabilities all exist, and, and they exist in a very real sense, and the... Copenhagen interpretation, which is now the standard model that's been merged with with relativity, but the general Copenhagen interpretation, which is still the dominant interpretation in quantum mechanics, which is really ridiculous, is that one single reality pops out of that. So it produces the here and now that we see. But that's that's so, so stupid. There's no That's a belief system. There's no proof that one single reality, other than the fact that they look at things and say, well, it looks like one thing to me. But that's ridiculous. You can't say that. Uh, you have to, the, the theory, Hugh Everett was a physicist who, who called it a monstrosity, the, the Copenhagen interpretation. But nonetheless, it's still the dominant interpretation. But let me, let me extend this discussion to a conclusion that most scientists would sort of gag at now. But you'll see in the future, they'll have to eat their words on this. If everything exists as a probabilistic sphere that's based on sort of an average frequency, that's what I call the quantum signature, then if you change that average frequency, then that reality or that spot, that existence, will be out of sync, out of phase with whatever we see, and it will be invisible to us. It just will not exist. So I'm going to say this. Let me just explain it. What do we know about the planet Venus right now? Well, it's the surface of Venus is hot enough, I believe, to melt lead. It's got sulfuric acid clouds and rain. Well, there's no rain, like liquid water, like liquid rain, but it's sulfuric acid everywhere. The carbon dioxide and sulfuric acid. 
not only can it not support life, but it can't even support the existence of robotic spacecraft other than just for a few seconds uh, because the corrosive environment and I mean it's a sterile world and no mainstream scientists or astronomers would disagree with that so let's bring in the discussion of that we just had with regard to the probabilistic mirrors that's the Venus that we see but there is a very very great possibility that Venus may be the home of a robust intelligent civilization this is where this is where the mainstream scientists are getting ready to click off but let's just hold on for a second how could that possibly be if i've just described venus as being hot enough to melt lead totally sterile and everything because that's the reality that we see in our quantum realm in our sort of quantum signature in our average base frequencies so if you look at the electromagnetic spectrum and look at where we are in the visible light spectrum that's the the average of the visible light spectrum is where we are on the quantum level so if you slide up into the higher frequencies you're talking ultraviolet and then you get higher you know if you slide up in those frequencies you're going to have waveforms you're going to have everything exists as frequencies but you're going to have the same basic principles of superpositioning of superposition happening up in the higher frequencies as there. So you'll have the same normal curves that look like these wave packets. You'll have everything the same happening in those higher frequencies, but they will be out of phase, out of sync with the stuff that's in the visible light spectrum. So what is going to be happening if you take a quantum signature that's at a, that's at a higher spot in the electromagnetic spectrum? Well, what's going to be dropping off? Well, in our realm, in the visible light spectrum. In our realm, what are the frequencies that interact with us? Well, we've got all the reds and all the heats. That's where all the red and the heat come from. The infrared, the, all that heat is on the lower end of the visible spectrum. That's where all the reds are. If you slide your average frequency up, then all that's gone. All of that drops off and you're going, you go above the blues, you're into the ultraviolets. So an average set of frequencies for an existence a little higher up in the electromagnetic spectrum wouldn't have all the heat and wouldn't have all the the reds all the infrared or you wouldn't have all, all that stuff would be gone you'd have something else it would still be a lot of light you'd have a bright situation but the whole existence would be different so if everything exists as a probabilistic smear then what you could have is a version of venus that we don't see that is invisible to us. There is no one version of anything. And that version of Venus could indeed be cooler, call, you know, cooler and, and habitable, and there could be people and buildings and civilizations there. And they would not be able to see us. The only way they could see us is if they got into one of their spaceships and changed their, enveloped themselves in whatever these ships do, to change their sort of, I call it the quantum signature, but their average base frequency to be a little bit lower. And then, boom, the Earth that we see would become visible to them, and then we would be able to see them. Now, if they did that, and we could be see them, and they could see us, they couldn't return to Venus and survive. I mean, if they returned to Venus in that state, they couldn't land. Their ship would be burned alive and vaporized just like any other thing. I mean, so they'd have to rechange their quantum signature in order to be at a different state and then to go back to a Venus that exists 
higher up in the electromagnetic spectrum. <laughs> anyway, but that's what the conclusions are for things like this, that there may be things that we totally do not understand. So when we look at these spacecraft and you get remote viewing perceptions that are described as interdimensional travel, what does that mean, interdimensional travel? What it likely means is that's the remote viewer's way to describe existences that occur a little differently on the electromagnetic spectrum, electromagnetic spectrum, such that we don't even know they exist. They're invisible to us. So in order for them to find us, they have to have some technology that adjusts their ships so that it vibrates in a way that's compatible with us. And then, boom, they're here. And that type of technology would also be the same type of technology that allows them to move around. That's their propulsion system. So they're using it for dimensional travel as well as physical travel within our dimension, as you might want to call it. So that seems to be what the remote viewers pick up. They seem to be picking up and using words like interdimensional travel, existences that occur at different set points in the electromagnetic spectrum that to us would be invisible to us, but indeed real civilizations exist there. So you don't have just civilizations that exist in our sort of average base frequency or quantum signature. You have some appearing all over the place, and then you have travel up and down that electromagnetic spectrum, up and down that sort of total collection of, of, of frequencies, as well as horizontally within a set frequency. So in the Earth set frequency that you and I see, there's travel within that. So they can go from Earth as we see it, and we notice them, and they travel to the moon, and they travel to Mars, and the ship like that. But then they can also travel what we would call interdimensionally, which is a shift or base frequency or their quantum signature, and then they would not be visible to us. And that seems to be what people see. They see ships that are existing in one sense, just like there. They can see them and then blink, they're gone. And they say, where did they go? And that seems to be a very common phenomenon. Uh, some people might want to call it cloaking technology. That's probably a nice way to call it. Their interesting aspect, the most interesting aspect to me, is that they seem to have mastered a technology that allows them to do this without ripping themselves apart. That's, that's the most amazing thing. Because when you change the quantum signature, you change the base frequency, you're, you've got to be able to keep everything in the ship, including the people alive. When you're changing their fundamental way of vibrating on a quantum level, that's a trick. That concludes part one of our interview. Be sure to tune in next week for part two. If you enjoyed the show, check out the website, which is legalizefreedom.com. That's legalize-freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including politics and economics, energy and environment, culture, spirituality, history, and the nature of reality. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com.